Welcome to the Old Testament Reading Plan Podcast. I'm your host, Joel, and today we're focusing on Judges 12 through 17. You can find and subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. All the links are in the show notes. If questions come up during the course of your reading, feel free to ask them by going to bit.ly slash ask dash ot. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash capital A lowercase sk dash capital O capital T. I have a friend from college who would frequently answer questions about what choices to make by saying, just follow your heart, man. He, he was the sort of person who, when saying this, was both poking fun at the idea while also legitimately suggesting that your heart has some wisdom to impart in making a decision. He was also an enabler, someone who magnified the tendencies of others around him. For many of the groups he and I were a part of, that was good. We needed somebody to push us toward action, someone to enable our passions. But if he were dropped into a self-destructive group, disaster. Uh, You see, following our hearts can be a good choice, provided our hearts are aimed at something worthwhile, something worth desiring. In this case, passion enlivens us. But when our hearts aren't aimed at something worth desiring, when they're aimed instead at something that, that can bring death, that can bring harm, that can bring suffering, well, our passions can sabotage us. Passion is like fire. When directed, When boundaried well, it can benefit all those nearby. That's why often a campfire will have a ring of rocks around it or some sort of uh, metal edge. Because if fire is allowed to surge uncontrollably, it can wreak terrible, horrible destruction. And this week, our primary character, Samson, well, he's like passion and fire personified. Even in the stories of Jephthah and and Micah, that bookend Samson story in our reading this week, we see what can come from unbridled, unboundaried passion. Let's get into the text. Now, as you may remember from last week, Jephthah made an ill-conceived vow to God and ended up sacrificing his daughter. Undeterred by this, he continues to judge Israel. He deals with Ephraim in a confrontation much like the one Gideon had with Ephraim last week. And in both cases, the, t- the tribe of Ephraim isn't specifically called upon to assist in battle. And in both cases, they take that slight super personally. Jephthah is not as uh, silver-tongued as Gideon. So instead of avoiding the conflict... He actually escalates the conflict with Ephraim. Not only does he tell Ephraim, hey, I did, in fact, summon you. You refused. But he also then takes over several fords that connect uh, uh, the, the tribe of Ephraim on one side of the Jordan River to the tribe of Ephraim on the other side. And then he has the people uh, who serve him that are holding these fords kill Every Ephraimite that attempts to cross, uh, there's a the word that's used in order to determine if someone's an Ephraimite or not is shibboleth, and uh, this is 
something that's it has come into our English language because of this story. A shibboleth is something that is like a, like an insider word, something that that only those who are in the know know about. Uh, you, you can also see sometimes this this is referred to in passwords online. There's a certain shibboleth that that we need, which is kind of interesting. In any case, Ephraim offers a cautionary tale to everyone who sees slights when none exist. Instead of looking for ways that the world has done you wrong, looking for ways other people have done you wrong, instead of doing that, I'd encourage you, look for ways you can love the world. Look for ways you can love other people. That same amount of grace that you want extended to you, extend that grace to others. Don't be like Ephraim. You'll be happier. I promise. From here, we enter the four-chapter saga of Samson. And in some ways, Samson is like the biblical Hercules. In his stories, we see the strength and power to overcome almost any obstacle. Samson's also a popular character to discuss in children's Sunday school, although the stories need to be somewhat edited, somewhat redacted. Uh, Samson is a man of passion. His own worst enemy is himself. He ends up just being his own saboteur in many of these stories. And even uh, in, in his story, we see this passion in the form of fire crop up all over. You see the fire that brings the angel back to heaven right at the beginning of his story, the fire that's used to threaten his first wife and her family, the fire on the torches he ties to the foxes and then sends throughout the fields of the Philistines. And, and in addition to that, the ropes that are used to tie him up are sometimes described as that, that melting as if in a fire, because of his strength. So fire, take note of this as we read through the story of Samson. Take note also of how the word woman is used. It's another key word. Samson possesses a strong desire for women throughout his life. And interestingly, in his story, the only woman that is named is Delilah. Even his mother is not named. It's as if the story is communicating that when sexual passion is allowed to run rampant instead of being channeled and controlled in healthy ways, well, like fire, that's going to wreak some destruction. That will objectify one's sexual partner. And so instead of being named, instead of being individualized with specific thoughts, feelings, and dreams associated with the individual, the lustful passion flattens and reduces uh, one's potential partner just to their plumbing, right? Just to their, their sex, their gender. This is the difference between love on the one hand and lust on the other. Love tries to see and appreciate all of the unique facets of the individual, while lust focuses simply on what can satisfy my own pleasure. So we've got fire, we've got women, and then another area of passion in the story of Samson is the level of violence that's sparked by Samson's anger. Samson kills thousands of people in brutal ways, including uh, one eventful uh, happening where he uses a donkey's jawbone, another one in which he collapses a building. We see this violence in other ways, too. It's endemic to Samson's story. Instead of God's Spirit coming upon 
uh, Samson, like God's spirit would come upon a prophet, God's spirit seizes Samson or comes powerfully upon him. Uh, other translations render this as, you know, the spirit rushed upon him. There's, there's even a, a suddenness and a violence uh, th- that's innate even to how the spirit comes upon him. We'll look at some more specific stories of Samson after the break, but let's pause for a moment to acknowledge God's willingness to use someone like Samson. I mean, Samson is much closer to someone like Gaston from Beauty and the Beast, someone who is brawny without a whole lot of brain and kind of self-satisfied. He's arrogant, he's violent, lustful, selfish, and a brute. And yet, God not only uses him in spite of himself, God actively chooses him to serve. And if God can choose someone like Samson to serve, God can choose you or me also. God does not call the equipped, God equips the called. The story of Samson begins with his mother being barren. Immediately at the beginning of this story, the stories of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel, all are recalled because all of these matriarchs and patriarchs struggled to conceive. As you read the Old Testament, take note of conventions like this. Just like our convention of opening a story by saying once upon a time suggests something about that story, like it's fantasy or or legend or epic, the Bible also has certain conventions. When a woman is said to be barren, the Bible is trying to train us to ask, will God intercede for her? It's sort of like any time a man and a woman meet at a well in the Bible, there's a a marriage proposal that's on the horizon or something like that. Uh, when, When the Bible mentions the barrenness of a woman, pay attention. In this case, God's angel appears telling uh, the the woman here that God will enable her and Manoah, her, her husband, to conceive. But God's angel gives them some particular directions. Way back in number six, which uh, I believe was part of our plan here, so you may have read that, the law outlined a way for an Israelite to draw nearer to God for a time. It's known as a Nazarite vow. Uh, This isn't to be confused with the city Nazareth, where Jesus would grow up. Uh, A Nazarite vow comes from the Hebrew word that means to separate oneself. And and, and the Nazarite uh, would separate themselves from the rest of the community, sort of consecrating themselves, by uh, not consuming alcohol, by not partaking of haircuts, and, and not getting ritually unclean via food or being in the presence of a dead body. From birth... Samson is bound by a Nazarite vow. And this was very unusual because a Nazarite vow ordinarily would have had a set beginning and a set ending. And a Nazarite vow would normally have been entered into by the person themselves, not by the person's parents on their behalf. So Samson's father, Manoah, hears all of this from his wife, reporting it back to him, and he struggles to understand this. Uh, Some scholars suggest that Manoah is particularly dim-witted, which is where Samson gets his sort of brutish nature. Um, But it's also possible that Manoah may be concerned about his wife getting her hopes up without reason. Whatever Whatever the case, he wants to have a conversation with the person who shared such stunning news that his wife would conceive. So focused 
is he on getting some answers that he only realizes that the person is actually an angel after the angel ascends back into heaven on a flame. Take note of this single-minded focus, this tunnel vision that Manoah shows, because this is going to affect Samson's decision-making also. So as we get into the next couple of chapters, uh, Samson's story goes through three acts, with the second act being real short. These three acts all are surrounding a particular women. Uh, there's this the Philistine woman from Timnah. There's a prostitute that Samson sees. And then there's Delilah, who the text says Samson loves. We only get the barest description of each of these relationships. For the book of Judges, they're effectively just vehicles by which Samson is goaded into taking action against the Philistines. So we'll start with the woman from Timnah. She initially attracts Samson, likely based on physical characteristics alone. We're not told that Samson has a conversation with her. In fact, the very first word out of Samson's mouth is, this woman, I want, uh, sort of thing to his father. Uh, Samson's not concerned about propriety. Um, he's not concerned about the intermarriage factor. He's not concerned about going after a Philistine. This uncontrolled passion, this uncontrolled lust gives Samson tunnel vision. He wants this woman unconcerned about her family, unconcerned about her people or getting to know them, unconcerned about any attachment she might have. He simply wants her and to be with her. So there's this strange and interesting story that the book of Judges relates on the road to Timnah, where Samson kills a lion by the power of the spirit. I would say this is pretty memorable. If I were to tear a lion apart with my bare hands, I would remember when and where, and I would probably tell as many people as I could. This is awesome. Uh, and, and so Samson, uh, although he's unusually strong, perhaps both in body and in spirit, um, he he remembers where he killed this lion, where he left the dead lion's carcass. And so when he returns to Timna sometime later, perhaps as much as a year later, he goes and he finds this lion's carcass. Now recall, a Nazarite isn't allowed to be near a dead body. A Nazarite is also not allowed to eat unclean food. And eating honey from the carcass of a dead lion, that is not ritually clean. So despite the clear laws and direction of God, Samson decides, I'm going to follow my own rules. I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. He, and so he says, I want to intermarry this Philistine. I want to eat unclean honey. What's it to you? I'm still strong. What are you going to do about it? He even shares some of this unclean honey with his parents and ropes them into the marriage with the Philistine. And I wonder, how frequently does this happen? That our own rebellion, our own brokenness, ends up involving the people around us. See, even if Samson doesn't intend to rope his parents, his tribe, his nation into a conflict, his actions leave them no choice. I wonder if you've experienced this, where you got roped into a conflict because someone you loved made a foolish decision, or, or, or you got roped into to, to something you didn't want to participate in because you needed to support someone you loved. This is kind of what's going on with Samson. So Samson uh, takes this honey, and this, this story is important not only because like this is the story that I would tell at every party if it happened to me, but also it lays a groundwork for the bet that Samson makes with the wedding party in this story. So confident is he that nobody's going to know the riddle he gives out of the eater something to eat, out of the strong something sweet. 
he gives the wedding companions 30 to 1 odds, saying, hey, if I win, each of you gives me a pair of garments. If you win, I'll give each of you a pair of garments. Uh, so this is something where, uh, you know, Samson has some loaded dice he's playing with here, and he's certain he's going to win. Now, when I was in middle school, one of my favorite car ride games that we would play anytime we went to, to, to youth camp uh, on the church bus was a game called Tell Me the Story. There was one uh, middle school mentor uh, who was very good at this. He had so many riddles just memorized. And, and the idea of tell me the story is that one person gives a concise riddle. One of my favorites is the music stopped and he died. And there's a whole story behind this that um, the participants in the game will ask yes or no questions uh, to try and learn the story behind the riddle. And, and the person giving the riddle will answer these yes or no questions, um, you know, and so on and so forth. There's a camaraderie that this game builds. Everyone is trying to do their best lateral thinking. Everyone's trying to ask creative questions. Everyone's trying to tell the story. I love this game. But Samson's riddle, uh, I don't think was something to set up this sort of game. Now, this riddle would have been a great tell-me-the-story riddle, but the rules for the game Samson's playing seem not to allow the participants to ask questions. And without questions, figuring out this riddle? Impossible. There's no way. Samson's right to be confident. The goal of this riddle, this game, clearly is not camaraderie. The goal instead seems to be humiliation and pride. Uh, although scripture doesn't tell us what Samson was doing over the seven days of the marriage celebration, it seems consistent with Samson's character to add insult to injury during this week, asking the wedding party each day, hey, how you doing with that riddle? Getting any closer? With, with like a really annoying smirk on his face. See, Samson effectively trapped the people who came to celebrate with him into giving him 30 pairs of garments. It's no wonder they were angry enough to threaten his fiancée and her family halfway through the celebration. And, and Samson's fiancée successfully wheedles the solution out of Samson, communicates it to the wedding party, and then Samson, burning with anger, gets the garments from the Philistines, from Philistines that he kills in the large city of Ashkelon. And not only does he lose the riddle and his pride, but he also loses his wife and his marriage. And this begins a tit-for-tat battle of vengeance between Samson and the Philistines. And whenever two parties consistently seek to take revenge on one another for perceived wrongs, the level of destruction escalates. Not only is this true in large-scale situations, I mean, we see this all the time in, in, in our politics, right? It's also true in smaller-scale situations, like a breakup between two people who were about to be married or between two people who needed to be divorced. Ultimately, when we allow our hunger for vengeance to rage uncontrollably, like a fire, it destroys anything it touches. Vengeance, remember, is not justice. Justice is controlled. Vengeance is, I'm going to give you what you gave me and more. It's a personal vendetta. And Samson's story, filled with a desire for revenge, is a textbook cautionary tale. He loses the riddle, so he goes and kills a bunch of Philistines. His wife is given to another man, so he burns the fields of the Philistines. In response, the Philistines burn his uh, ex-wife's house and, and her family all down. 
And then Samson does two acts of great violence. Uh, one where he just wreaks havoc upon the Philistines. Another, when the Philistines get the men of Judah to bind him, he breaks free of the the bonds, the bonds, excuse me, and then just goes to town with a donkey's jawbone. Nobody feels like justice is served here. Not the vengeful person, not the people on whom the vengeful person is getting revenge. There comes a break in the story, though, at the beginning of the next chapter, where Samson goes and sees a prostitute. And this leads to a show of great strength. Um, Somehow Samson finds that the men of Gaza are waiting for him to try and take vengeance on him. Again, this circle of revenge keeps on spinning. And instead of forcing the city gates open to escape around midnight, he pulls them up entirely and carries them away. Now, without gates, a city's defenses would be greatly compromised. And the text says that he carries these gates up to a mountain that he could see Hebron from. Now, Hebron is more than 20 miles away from Gaza. So some scholars believe that Samson brought the city gates up a mountain about a 45-minute journey by foot from Gaza. This is a little more realistic than walking 20 miles with a couple of gates on your back. Um, But even this climb up the mountain, it's a sandy uphill climb made all the more difficult by the city gates he carried. It's It's a superhero act of strength. It's just absolutely massive. So after this um, sort of in-between story, we get to the story uh, about the one named woman in Samson's story, Samson's narrative. This woman is Delilah. Now, Delilah might well have been an Israelite. The Valley of Sorek is in Israel's territory, not Philistine territory. And we see a narrative convention here as well, with three repetitions prior to a fourth iteration that veers in another direction. Each time, Delilah asks Samson, what's the secret to your strength? And Samson uh, gives a different explanation each time. In the first three, he lies. The last one, he tells the truth. Why Samson continues to trust Delilah after having been set up and betrayed three times? It's unfathomable to me. Like his father, perhaps, he has a single-minded tunnel vision focus. It may be that his passion and desire directs him to please Delilah at all costs so that she will continue to please him. This is what happens when you do not put boundaries around a person of passion. Uh, This person self-destructs. He even goes so far as to reveal the the true source of his power, perhaps believing that God has delivered him thus far, God will deliver him again. But that's not what happens. In Samson's arrogance, he believed that he could control God and instead learns that God's grace is just as uncontrollable, just as unpredictable as the fiery passion that fuels Samson. And the Philistines capture him, treat him like a slave, gouge out his eyes, bring him to entertain them at a celebration of their god, Dagon. And Samson has one last prayer to God, asking if God would grant him the strength to take vengeance on the Philistines. And I want you to note that Samson's final prayer, there's no repentance, there's no reevaluation of being led by his arrogance and wanton passions, nothing like that. Samson's prayer, it's entirely self-focused. Even these sorts of selfish prayers, God hears, God listens to. God doesn't always answer them yes, but God hears them. So after Samson's narrative concludes, we begin the epilogue of Judges, where we encounter some particularly brutal and disturbing stories. 
And in order to set the scene for these terrible stories, we begin with a story about 1,100 pieces of silver, the same amount promised to Delilah by each Philistine lord. In the penultimate Samson story, when uh, the Philistines capture him before he knocks down their temple, this is an immense amount of silver. And we see later in this chapter that a Levite is content to make 10 pieces of silver a year plus room and board. 1,100 pieces of silver is just bananas. And so with this 1,100 pieces of silver, there's this sort of back and forth that Micah and Micah's mom have. And they, they decide at the end to use this 1,100 pieces of silver to create symbols of God in the form of idols, along with an ephod and teraphim, which are tools of divination. All of this is very clearly not permitted when we read the Mosaic Law, but without a king, without a king's administration, who's going to enforce the laws of the land? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, much as Samson did what was right in his own eyes, following his passions. And this will be the refrain for this last portion of the book of Judges, that everyone does what is right in their own eyes. So when Micah encounters a Levite, it's sort of like having an iterant preacher, or excuse me, an itinerant preacher staying with him. There's this implicit understanding or this implicit thought that God's going to do right by God's priests. And so if I do right by God's priests, God will do right by me sort of thing. If I bless the priest, I too will receive a blessing. So instead of establishing boundaries for how to worship, the Levite goes along with Micah's mini temple with Micah's tools for worship and divination. As we will see next week, this has drastic, dire consequences. That's all for Judges 12 through 17. And next week, we're going to read Judges 18 through 21, wrapping up the book of Judges, along with reading the first two chapters in the book of Ruth. And we'll see not only the consequences of everyone doing what is right in their own eyes, that is, following your heart, but also how God is still working in spite of the violence and sin running rampant in Israel. May God bless you in your reading of Scripture.